the trail goes through the Rocky Mountains and it has an average elevation of about 10,000 feet. Tree line, it's between 11 and 12,000 feet. So there are lots of parts of the Colorado Trail that are above tree line in an alpine environment. So you can see for 100 miles to the horizon or, or maybe you know, you're in a deep valley so all you see is the mountains surrounding you. In July, there can be meadows of wildflowers just as far as you can see everywhere. Episode 276, Stefan Griebel is here to talk about the Colorado Trail Race and bikepacking. This episode is sponsored in part by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people. Learn more and get a free quote online at healthiq.com adventure. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I have a a really fun guest with us today. This is the founder of the Colorado Trail Race, which is a mountain bike race either from Denver to Durango or from Durango to Denver, 500-mile self-supported mountain bike race. And I'm really excited to uh, visit with him about the race. Stefan Griebel, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's very cool, man. So you told me that you're a full-time dad and father of three, and you said also something interesting that when you did the race the first time, that's what convinced you to go ahead and take the leap to become a dad. So explain that one for me. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I knew that I always wanted kids and thousand two thousand seven, and I had been married a couple years. Uh, interestingly enough, I I rode the Colorado Trail down to my wedding in Durango in two thousand five. So cool. That's kind of where my my obsession had started with the Colorado Trail, but I I didn't I couldn't quite ride all the parts of it because it was early it was in june and so some of the high altitude stuff was completely snowed out and i had to get rides around and i had to have my wife pick me up and drop me off and my parents haul my bike and stuff and and uh that just uh, that that experience just made me want to do it just bike packing style you know solo right. without having to have a whole crew of people to help me out and then that first year doing it in that style you have a lot of time to yourself to think about life and reflect on things that are important to you and after that race i was just came home and told my wife yeah let's let's have kids now <laughs> <laughs> that's great man so here i am <laughs> yeah here awesome. i am it's a cool story Ten so years later and, you are an electrical engineer at ball aerospace as well right yeah uh, that's correct so you've got a lot going on no doubt busy career busy dad and you love rock climbing and mountain biking and you founded the colorado trail race so very, very cool. So how did you get into mountain biking? Let's go, let's go way back. Did you grow up in Colorado? I did grow up down in the little town of Dolores, Colorado. And um, how did I get into mountain biking? So when I was, uh, I, I guess, like seventh or eighth grade, you know, I always had BMX bikes and stuff as a kid. And then my dad bought all my brothers and sisters and stepbrother and sisters mountain bikes when we were younger and uh at the time i didn't want a mountain bike i wanted a i wanted a road bike right (laughs) and so i think they they bought me a road bike but then 
something happened and I decided that I wanted a mountain bike after all. And, and so I didn't really start mountain biking until, you know, my middle school years, which maybe that's young for, for, uh, 40 year old people. Now I'm, I'm 42. And so back then there wasn't a whole lot of mountain biking going on, but these days, you know, half of my friends have kids that are three years old, including my kids that are already, we take a mountain biking all the time. Right. Yeah, the sport was kind of just coming into its own when you were that age. Yeah, back then, there was no such thing as shocks, fully rigid bikes. <laughs> so what was your first mountain bike like? It was it was a fully rigid Scott, uh, I don't even remember the model, but it had these newfangled self-energizing brakes, they called them. They hadn't invented V-brakes yet. <laughs> self-energizing? And, yeah, so there's like a like a screw mechanism that when the brake pads would touch the rim, the, you know, the, the direction of the rim rolling would, you know, make, it would try to pull the pad in and, and that would sort of tighten the screw. So the idea I think was that, that as you break, they would like self help self breaking. They were horrible. They were the worst breaks ever. You know, you needed your <laughs> it sounds dangerous actually. <laughs> you needed your whole hand. There's no, none of this one finger stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, yeah. that was that was a, a different time for mountain biking for certain. But you know, I love the innovations that happened early on and the way that the sport grew into what it is today. I mean, who would have thought? The first time I saw a mountain bike was when I was road biking on a long uh, multi-day trip, and somebody was on a mountain bike, and we went whizzing by, and I looked at it, and I just, what was that? <laughs> you know, it made no sense. <laughs> but I totally get it now. Totally get it now. What a cool thing. So you grew up in Colorado, you started mountain biking pretty young, and uh, still mountain bike today. Yeah, I, there's a few things I've found in life that put you in the flow state, and riding bikes downhill is one of them. And, you know, actually cranking uphill, too, when you're kind of maxing your cardio out or you're um, trying technical obstacles and timing things just right to make it up gnarly rock stuff puts you in a really good state of mind i think that's healthy long term i would hope and uh, certainly makes life worth living well it certainly helps to blow off a lot of stress too just being outside and moving i think is is so helpful yeah stress load yeah i agree with that well and you know what you just mentioned is something that we haven't talked about on the show for a while but it is some uh, a recurring theme that keeps coming back again is people talk about being in the moment or in the zone or in the flow, mm-hmm. like you just said, where you just really are focused, and there's nothing else in the world that, that matters at that moment, except for what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I, it's an amazing place to be. Um, describe what that feels like for people that may not know what, what you're talking about. Um, I, I imagine it's different for everybody, but probably similar in the same way. For me, like the flow state usually comes from when you're so focused on whatever it is you're working on that like five minutes can go by or an hour can go by and you don't really even know the time that's elapsed. Mm. Um, and, and your attention is so focused on what exactly it is you're doing that there's no, there's no extraneous thoughts that pervade your mind. You you're just, you're just in a flow state and doing, uh, what, whatever it is you may be doing. And it may be, you know, for me, it's, uh, like rock climbing is a good one and, and downhill mountain biking. Uh, but for 
uh, sometimes it's even work where if you know if you're working on a hard math problem or something um uh i think for a lot of people and myself included it's definitely sex right <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> so surely everybody's experienced that type of state there uh yeah hopefully that makes sense to people so it's when you get so focused on on the task at hand that you know, a lot of people practice meditation for a very long time to try to learn how to achieve that state. I, I think it's kind of cool that what you're saying is rock climbing can do that for you too, and mountain biking can do that for you too. So how does rock climbing do that? What's similar about rock climbing and mountain biking if they both get you into that frame of mind? For me, it's when I am completely engaged. Like when something is a task is hard enough that you're, it requires all of your brain power to accomplish it to go you know so rock climbing on on difficult moves or if you're trying to go really fast on something and not fall for mountain biking when you're you're at the limit of your ability on downhill riding so you're riding around rocks and jumping over rocks and roots and forests and the trees are flying by and uh to keep yourself from crashing requires your complete focus and sometimes you leave the flow state right and and you think about something for half a second, and all of a sudden you you just eat it on the trail. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, when I when I do rock climbing, there are some days that I can't get that focus, and I might as well go home, because I'm not going to climb well that yeah. day. You, have you experienced that? Yeah. Yeah, always. And uh, and usually it's it can be elusive, and maybe, you know, you go climbing, and you only have the, that state for a, a minute or two, and those are when you send your hardest project. Yeah. Because you have all the moves and you're not thinking about anything else. So it's not like a, I, I certainly don't claim to get in the flow state every single time I go out. But when you do, that's, it's just so good. And I, I wish that I could get it through meditation. That's, you know, that would be great. I, I'm envious of people that can meditate and take their brain there. Yeah, there's something awesome. really, really healthy about getting the brain to focus like that and, and getting all the noise to go away, I think. It's, uh, it's somehow it's, it's cleansing and refreshing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. But even if, if, you're, if you're not in the flow state, just, man, getting your heart rate up and sweating like mad can be pretty uh, uh, n- nourishing or whatever whatever the word is. Yeah. Like taking medication, you know, you feel better afterwards. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So it sounds like you're a pretty active guy. Adventure sports are a focus for you. Um, For someone who doesn't have that lifestyle, how would you recommend it to them? Well, uh, that's a good question. I guess if you don't have that lifestyle, but you're you're wanting to get into the sports, um, all I can say is just just go do it. Just find something that, uh, that you really enjoy doing like that and, and get out there and do it. And I know it's especially hard for like full time people that are working full time and they have a family. So uh, even if it's only 15 minutes or an hour that you have, if you can figure out how to take advantage of that time, uh, then that'll, that'll be your (laughs) gateway into, I guess, adventure sports, uh, you know, it all starts with going for a run, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the best advice there, <laughs> you know, because I, I think it's a personal thing. And if, if you're not driven to go do it, then uh, it's really hard to figure out how to uh, recommend somebody become 
become driven to go do that, you know. You know, I uh, I was visiting with a friend this week, and I said, well, you got to have something that calls to you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, that's going to be different for different people. It may not be climbing. It may not be biking. It, it could be a variety of things. But I really encourage people to try things until they find that thing that they really connect with because that motivates them then to get out and move and get all the benefits, right, of an adventure sport. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's kind of a challenge to say, well, if you don't want to do it, how do you get someone to do it? I, I don't really think that works so much. It's just, <laughs> you know, if uh, if someone tries enough things, eventually they'll find something that can really add to their health, you know, and their, their yeah. well-being long-term. So that's kind of one of the goals of the Adventure Sports Podcast. We want to encourage people oh. to, to be healthy. Get out there, man. Yeah. Well, hopefully there's some people listening that aren't uh, already into adventure sports. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> so. Hopefully oh. so. Yeah. Well, really cool. Let's talk about mountain biking a little bit. Um, a lot of people know mountain biking more or less, but mountain biking in the real mountains, like on the Colorado Trail, might be a little bit different than mountain biking in other parts of the nation. So describe what mountain biking is like. Okay. Well, mountain biking the Colorado Trail is definitely not like any mountain biking videos you've seen from Red Bull, where <laughs> people are jumping 70-foot canyons, and they have uh, these huge, uh, fully squishy travel bikes, and there's hundreds of people watching. <laughs> mountain biking the Colorado Trail tends to be you're poking along at about two and a half miles an hour, and you're grinding up some super bumpy hills. And if you're in the race, man, you know, you probably haven't showered in several days and you're really sleepy and tired. Um, yeah, sounds like fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> sounds a little grueling. But, but there's, it's pretty grueling. But, you know, not, I'm not, I've done the race uh, a few times and sure, I, I founded it and those in a kind of a different period of my life. And uh, so it's, well, it's still fun. Uh, you know, I go out for an hour and have a, a great time mountain biking. And the Colorado Trail has got so much great trail that's that's flowy through the trees and um really pretty areas that it takes you to so for me the mountain biking is it's very enjoyable these days more than uh in the past it was kind of about the suffering i i, I find myself less and less willing to suffer the older i get i just want to go have fun and enjoy myself and oh, yeah. you know a lot of sometimes that involves going for a really long ride you gotta you gotta mix things up but Sometimes it's just short fun rides, too, and technical things, technical challenges. So describe a technical challenge on a mountain bike. What are we talking about? Oh, I guess for non-mountain bikers, think of, uh, like, big rocky steps that involve having to do a wheelie and then pull up your back wheel and something that's so steep that you're also at the limit of your aerobic capacity and you're still uh, requiring all of your balance and strength to, to get up certain part of the trail that's what i would call a technical challenge or it can be going downhill too right like uh in in moab those four-wheel drive jeep roads and big sandstone ledges and stuff can be super challenging technical descents that if you mess up you might fall and get hurt really bad but <laughs> so so something different than uh um just smooth trail riding Got and that's it. what i really like actually honestly you know i, I love the technical riding technical challenges of biking yeah i think that a lot of people that really get into mountain biking they end up there it's kind of like i want to see what i can get this machine to go over and it, it is a lot of fun and that's where the skill comes in 
So mm-hmm. I, uh, I think one element mm-hmm. of it is that you're generally going really, really slowly when you're trying to get, get through a technical uphill or a climb or something like that. And I, it's just so much harder to balance when you're almost stationary. Matter of fact, some of the time, mountain biking, you see people that are completely stationary so that they can maneuver yeah. their bike to get it where they want to go. Yeah. My, my eight-year-old son's uh, favorite athlete is Danny McCaskill. If you've ever seen him do, he, he's sponsored by Red Bull and, uh, he does all these trials stunts, hopping on picnic tables and riding backwards on his front wheel and doing flips. And he's just riding platform pedals on this bike and has some amazing core strength. Like the the objects that are obstacles that are technical for me, you know, he would just like hop up and around and then do a, (laughs) do a 360 and come down. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, that's one of the beautiful things about mountain biking is I think it's endless. You're never going to get good enough that there's not a challenge. And no matter what your level is, you can find a challenge that's appropriate for you, right? Yeah, that's totally true. It can be fun for everybody, no matter no matter if you're Danny McCaskill or, uh, you know, like my mom, who's 70. She loves riding her mountain bike on the trails down there around Dolores because there's, there's smooth trails and there's steep trails and fun trails and there's something for everybody. Yeah, I, I, I think mountain biking is awesome. I really do. And I, I, I'm right in there with you. It's one of the best sports I've ever taken up. It's just so entertaining. But uh, let's talk about the Colorado Trail. Before we talk about biking on it, just what is the Colorado Trail so people get a feel for what we're talking about here? Sure. The Colorado Trail is mostly single track. Maybe, well, I shouldn't say mostly. It's like 80% single track trail that goes from Denver to Durango. And it's about 520 or 530 miles long. And it, you know, it was built almost 30 years ago, but there's always refinements happening. It was the vision of, um, now I can't, now I'm blanking on her name, even though her name will come to me later in the, in the show, but she's, she's kind of the grandmother of the Colorado trail. And she started the Colorado trail foundation. Um, Oh, it's a Goody. Her name is Goody. There's a bench named after her right there at the Goody's rest, you know, right as you come into Durango. Yep. Yep. So she, she had the vision to, to link all these different trails together and call them the Colorado Trail. And so it, it's quite a, quite a network of trails to get you down there, all the way down to Durango. I interviewed a couple who had done all of the three really long trails, the Appalachian Trail, mm-hmm. the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. And I said, what's your favorite one? Yeah. And they said the Colorado Trail. and they were just astounded by the scenery the beauty of it and they also liked it actually that the colorado trail even though 500 miles is a long way um they liked it that it was short enough that it just seemed more doable you could do it in a shorter (laughs) period of time and and didn't have to you know get an extended leave of absence from work or something right yeah yeah that's so funny right to some people the colorado trail is short (laughs) right right oh and to others, it's, it's insurmountably long. Uh, and, and actually, it shares about, I think about 200 miles are shared with the Continental Divide Trail. Sure. From Gunnison, Gunnison to somewhere in the San Juans, they're the same trail.
This episode is sponsored in part by Health IQ. Health IQ advocates for a health conscious lifestyle. Do you exercise five times a week? If so, you deserve lower rates on life insurance, don't you? Health IQ uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including avid cyclists, runners, strength trainers, vegans, and more. In fact, research has shown that those who frequently exercise with intensity have 22% lower cancer risk, 56% lower heart disease risk, and up to 34% lower risk of early death. Historically, you get penalized for family history, BMI, and other attributes, but you don't get rewarded for your health-conscious lifestyle. Health IQ rewards you for your health-conscious lifestyle with special rates on life insurance. Learn more and get a free quote at healthiq.com adventure. That's healthiq.com adventure. And we thank them for sponsoring our show. Bingate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. We have listeners from around the planet. Um, almost every nation on Earth now has downloaded our show. And so for people that don't have any oh, idea cool. about what Colorado is, uh, describe the views and the type of landscape that the Colorado Trail covers. Sure. Uh, the trail goes through the Rocky Mountains, and it has an average elevation of about 10,000 feet. In Colorado, tree line is about, it's between eleven and 12,000 feet. So there are, are lots of parts of the Colorado Trail that are above treeline in, in an alpine environment. So you can see for 100 miles to the horizon, or, or maybe you know, you're in a deep valley, so all you see is the mountains surrounding you. And uh, in July, there can be meadows of wildflowers, just as far as you can see everywhere. They're also in the summer, the, in Colorado, the typical weather pattern is you know, it's nice in the morning and then it clouds up and thunderstorms come in the afternoon. So if you're down in the trees, that's a good place to be when the thunderstorms roll through. When, when you're up high and those thunderstorms roll through, there, there's lightning hazard. It can be pretty dangerous. Some of the worst experiences of my life are from lightning storms when, you're, when there's nowhere to shelter. Mm. Um, but the Colorado Trail, it can also be super, super hot and some of those lower elevations. You can just be baking and it's 95 degrees Fahrenheit uh, and uh, hot and 
and dusty. So, so really it spans the whole range of, of Colorado, uh, geography, I would say, you know, the lowest point in Colorado is like 4,000 feet and the lowest point of the trail, I believe is, uh, probably a Waterton Canyon, which is about 5,500 feet. So the whole trail um, the is an altitude, point, really. Yeah. Yeah. You're for, for a non, uh, for someone who lives at sea level, the whole trail would be considered altitude for someone who lives in Colorado. It, you know, it's, I guess, considered normal because it's 5,000 feet or so, but it tops out at 13,200 is the highest point. So that if is you're coming from there. sea level. Probably, yeah. Yeah. That's way up there. There's pretty thin. It's actually really hard to ride up at that elevation. Not surprisingly. So uh, people that haven't been around the, the high mountains, may not know so i'm going to fill in a gap here as you yeah. travel up in elevation then the the climate changes the weather changes the ecosystem changes so what you just described you know when you're down around 5000 feet then it's it's pretty similar to anywhere out in the plains or something like that right but then mm-hmm. by the time you get up to 13 you're in arctic tundra so it's like you went from you know maybe you're at at 30 degrees latitude all the way to the north pole and that happened because you went up so much. Mm-hmm. And the air is thinner, too, of course. Yeah, I can't well, imagine realize how, that, you know. yeah, how hard it is to not only mountain bike, but now we, we should probably tell people the Colorado Trail Race is self-supported, which means you're carrying all of your gear on your bike as well. So you've got a, a heavy load, and you're at altitude, and it's steep, and it's rough. That's got to be killer. Yeah, but it, but at least it's really rainy sometimes too. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this is amazing stuff. So you uh, started the Colorado Trail Race back in two thousand seven, and that's right. Uh, how many how many racers were there that first year? The first year, ten of us started, and seven of us finished. Um, and one of them, who I believe you've had in the show already, Hefe Branham, was in the in the first group. Hefe and I actually rode like the last 35 hours together, you know, back and forth. And then, and then at the end, he beat me by about 20 minutes. Went into Durango. <laughs> so 20 minutes, 20 minutes over five days. And, uh, we were both really, really sleep deprived and pretty messed up. Um, and now there's, there's been around 70 people the last few years, 70 starters. Yes. 70 starters. And the attrition rate's been pretty, Pretty typical year to year, about 50% of the people that start finish it. So 50% that start finish. So that, that says something right there. This is not your average 5K, right, where everyone gets a chance to finish. You're talking about half the yeah. people that think they're ready for this race find out they're not. Yeah. yeah. I Last time I uh, lined up to race it in 2013, I didn't finish it. Um, but I... That was the first year that we rode from Durango. So it used to, the first years of the race, we started in Denver and rode down to Durango. And then uh, the, the route changed, kind of evolved. And, and now it's been the same route. And we should talk a little bit about that too, you know, the, oh, yeah. versus the, the actual hiking trail. But um, yeah, I, I got to ride all the trail backwards that I hadn't ridden backwards before. And then uh, I certainly wasn't finding the flow state anywhere. <laughs> and uh, I was missing my, I was missing my family because I had, I had uh, kids, you know, little kids at that point. And so once I got to Buena Vista, 
I was just like, yeah, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) So people, I think people drop out for lots of different reasons and it's not always because they're not prepared or willing. Sometimes just like, yeah, I'm tired of this or, and sometimes it can be a mechanical problem. Uh, you know, lots of, lots of different reasons to drop out, I suppose. Oh yeah, no doubt. So the Colorado trail as a hiking trail does go through some wilderness areas and those designated right. wilderness areas, uh, you're not allowed to bike in those places, right? That is correct. Um, most people know that you're not allowed to ride a mountain bike in the wilderness. When I was collaborating with a couple of the people on starting the Colorado Trail Race back in 2006, the year before we started, we, we learned that it's actually illegal to possess a mountain bike in the wilderness area. Mm. You know, initially we thought there's this first wilderness area close to Denver is called Lost Creek Wilderness. And it's about, it's only five miles through the Lost Creek Wilderness area on the Colorado Trail. And, um, we thought, you know, this would be perfect. You just get to the wilderness boundary and take the wheels off your bike, put them on your backpack and hike through the wilderness. Technically though, that's illegal. And well, one of the, the three rules of the Colorado Trail is pretty simple. And you know, the first ones don't break the law. So we decided against doing that. And, and it's actually unfortunate because the detour around that first wilderness area, you either have to ride highway 285 for 25 miles up to Kenosha pass, or you have to ride this, it's called the Terriol detour, which is like 50 miles of gravel roads instead of a five mile hike. Wow. So does the race kind of a bummer there. Yeah. Which way does the race normally go? So the first year and the first several years we rode highway 285. Um, but now we, we ride the long gravel detour and it, it adds on about seven more miles of the actual single track of the Colorado trail. <laughs> it's wow. kind of funny really, but, uh, you know, the race has gotten harder since the first year, I would say, no, because of the course changes and, um, and a new piece of trail was constructed, which is the, it's really the crown jewel of the Colorado trail down by Lake city. And it's 30 miles above tree line. It's called the cataract Ridge segment. And, uh, we used to the very first year, the first couple of years we rode, cinnamon pass which is like this four-wheel drive road and there's cars everywhere and so when they added the when they completed the cataract ridge segment which is open to mountain bikes um that became part of the race and it it removed the the lake city resupply option from the race so the race got substantially harder when when we started using that part of the trail Mm. not to mention that it's really high above tree line for a long way yeah yeah, thirty miles above twelve thousand feet, I think, are the actual statistics. So, but if it's if it's an awesome day, it's just gorgeous up there. You can see mountains. It's three hundred and sixty degrees around, as far as you can see. It's just mountains. Really, really cool. Yeah, sounds <clears throat> sounds amazing. So the the actual race course then has to leave the Colorado Trail about how many times by the time you you finish the race? Let's see. I, I think I, I just throw five or six out there, but we can go through them because uh, it actually is what having to leave the trail is what makes it a good race and a good bikepacking event. Because when you leave the trail, that's when you get to go into town and resupply. So you only have to carry enough food and supplies, you know, for a day or two instead of for the entire race. Okay. People have, people have hiked the Colorado trail unsupported. Um, 
without with zero resupply, they start with 30 pounds of food on their back and, and hike straight through. But that's that's not typically the norm. Um, and and for for mountain biking, every every pound on your back is like uh, it's 10 more pounds on your butt. It feels like because you know your butt gets so sore after <laughs> riding nonstop for day after day. But yeah, so the first, you know, it detours, we have to detour all the wilderness areas and um, it leaves a trail to detour Lost Creek Wilderness, rejoins the top of Kenosha Pass. And then there's the Collegiate Peaks Wilderness that's down, um, uh, that, that brings you into Leadville. And, oh, I'm sorry, that's the Holy Cross Wilderness that takes you into Leadville. And then the Collegiate Peaks Wilderness brings you into Buena Vista for some resupply. And then there is the... La Guerita Wilderness, which is down in the San Juans, and that used to take you to Lake City till they built this other piece of trail. So now you don't you don't have to go into Lake City and you go straight into Silverton. Um, and then there's the Weemanooch Wilderness down by Silverton. So that's five. It leaves a trail in five, five different spots. So what percent of the time do you think you're actually on the Colorado Trail versus bypassing the wilderness areas? Uh, the race itself is over... 500 miles and I would say maybe 150 tops are on the the detours and the first one is the biggest the Terriol is 50 miles or 70 miles or something of dirt roads and then the second biggest one is the Lagarita detour down there in the San Juan and that's about 50 miles of dirt road also so it's kind of a bummer not to be able to ride the whole trail but uh, that's that's designated wilderness. No, you know, no mechanical transport. Yeah, so we got to we got to play by the rules. I I love the the idea that we do have places where you can only walk. Right, you're gonna you're not gonna have any sort of yeah. of a mechanical machine to carry you. And it's good to have those places. And uh, I think it, like you said, is what makes the Colorado Trail more doable as a self-supported race because it takes you to the resupply. So I guess in a way it kind of worked out, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion. I, I wish that wilderness areas were actually, uh, um, just like non motorized or human powered. They call right. them human powered. Uh, but there's, there's definitely places like the Holy Cross wilderness of which I've hiked through. <laughs> it would be ridiculous to take a bike. I mean, you would just carry your bike the entire time. Yeah. So, so certainly about. some areas, yeah, some areas, you know, in like in Rocky Mountain National Park and stuff, they're like there's pointless to have a bike anyway, even though they're not even designated as a wilderness. But that's a that's a whole other topic we could talk about, you know, what what should bikes be allowed in wilderness? People people bring up that question every once in a while. Sure. So sure. I guess now the rest now the rest of the world knows how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, managing our public lands and access issues, that's a big deal. And we actually did a whole show on that a while back. I, uh, I think that it's important for people to uh, pay attention to that discussion, to learn about it, and to offer their input and, and some of their opinions to the Forest Service or whichever department is uh, taking care of the area of interest. I, uh, I think it's so important that we're able to maintain access and that all the various different types of sports have a place where they can go do what they want to do, right? Yeah. So it's a big deal. Yeah. It really is a big deal. But I want to talk a little bit about yeah, bike, I agree with that. bike packing. So 
This is a yeah. little bit newer of an idea. I mean, people, as soon as there was a mountain bike, they thought, ooh, I wonder if I could backpack with this, right? But bike packing mm, yeah. has really come into its own just quite a bit more recently. Yeah, I'm not sure where the word was first coined, probably, you know, 100 years ago, who knows, because they've been certainly bike packing for hundreds of years. There's some great historic photos and stuff online you can dig up of, you know, people in the World War One era on these just ancient bikes with big packs. Um, but I don't know. For for me, my first experience bike packing. I'd never heard the word bike packing before, but I was in high school, and my stepbrother and I put big packs in a, a tent. I mean, we had, geez, thirty five pounds or or more of gear, and we tried to go on this bike packing trip, and uh, I had a tire blow out, and we ended up only making it one night. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's it really uh, it really opens up the the distances compared to backpacking so when, when you go backpacking a really long day can mean 20 miles for some people for maybe it's 10 miles can be a huge day of backpacking but on a bike man you can cover like 100 miles in a day so you you really see you can see a lot more terrain and go a lot further i think on a bike plus the downhills are easier because you just coast and enjoy the downhills instead of having to hike down on Oh, yeah. Hiking downhill with a pack is not fun. <laughs> I mean, it is, yeah. but it's not. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. There's some, there's some downhill hike-a-bike on the Colorado Trail, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, gnarly enough, like talus and big rocks that you actually have to hike down. It's a little demoralizing sometimes, but there's not too much of it. Well, originally people just tried to put on a pack and ride, and then you get kind of top-heavy. It's hard to control the bike. People do it, but it's, it's difficult. Yeah. But now people have found ways to get quite a bit of gear into the frame of the bike and the handlebars and over the back of the back tire. And so describe what a gear setup looks like. Yeah. Um, I, I think that mountain bike packing has really brought about a revolution in the, the gear that's available for, for touring. I'm sure you've seen people, you know, touring on heavily loaded bikes that have these rigid racks and uh, panniers on the sides and on the front fork. And the, the problem for mountain biking is, number one, the weight, like you mentioned, is really difficult. And uh, number two, like everything breaks. So every rigid rack that I've tried to mountain bike with has eventually broken. And I think that's brought about this, this idea of these soft-sided bags. So you can get a saddle bag now that's soft-sided, and it's like a, it's like a dry bag, and it's like a kayak dry bag. It just unrolls, and you can fit. You know, it's huge now, so it sticks out way behind your seat. Um, and then, uh, like a sleeping bag roll underneath your handlebars, which is also soft-sided. And then the the frame bags. There's several several companies out there, or guys guys girls that have started a company to make full custom internal frame bags that you can that fit inside the triangle part of your bike. And those are super popular for the Colorado Trail because they hold a lot of stuff, and uh, and then you keep the weight off your back. You know, there are people who have done the Colorado Trail without a backpack, believe it or not, just carried everything on their bike. Everything on their bike. Which, That's pretty light. Which, which means, yeah, which means their kit is really optimized. They've got a, maybe they don't even have a sleeping bag, you know, just, just like uh, enough food and, and enough layers to get by. So they're only talk, you're only talking about an extra 10, 10 pounds of 10 or 12 pounds of weight to distribute it around your bike, which is amazingly light when you think about 
going for a backpack trip, especially with kids. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you're carrying, yeah, carrying 12 pounds of food just for one night, but you know. So back to the race, it's self-supporting. Yeah. It is do it yourself. That's right. right? So that means you have that, to choose your right. gear and somehow pack your gear that you're going to need to, to complete the race. That's right. That's uh pretty daunting if you've never gone bikepacking before. There's a lot of a lot of choices, especially now there's more and more choices and different strokes for different folks. Some people like a hammock, some people like a bivy sack, some people take little tents or tarps. So just figuring out what works for you bikepacking can be quite a journey and uh and actually a lot of fun, I think, dialing in your kit and figuring out what you like and and what works best for you. Well, the the Colorado Trail Race has become very, very fast. I mean, ridiculously fast. We we need to talk about what it's like to, to actually be on the race. But before we go there, um, I would think that if you're in the race, your kit's going to be quite a bit different than if you just went bike packing in general. But what would a bike packing yeah. kit be? If you Let's say that I wanted to go out for five days on a trail and I wanted to take enough gear to just kind of enjoy nature. What, what kind of yeah. gear do I need for that? Yeah. So you'd want to pick something that's, um, a balance in, in lightness and amenities. So if it's just you, if you're doing it solo, um, a lightweight pad and, uh, a light sleeping bag and a bivy sack would be like the bulkiest stuff that you're carrying. If you're going with, um, with another person, then maybe you can take a little two person tent, you know, and split up the weight that way. Uh, or some people will just take a, a tarp and use their bike as a, a structure to set the tarp up. And then, of course, uh, in Colorado, you want to take some rain gear and at least layers for your legs and a fleece jacket as well, depending on where you're going. And then you need uh, certainly to think about the water situation. In, in Colorado, especially the Colorado Trail, if you're bikepacking on it, there's lots of water and streams everywhere. In places... Um, in Utah, maybe you, you don't have that much access to water, so you have to figure out how to carry a gallon of water on your bike. Wow. Um, still, yeah, even just for a, a, a recreational overnight bike pack trip, a lot of thought can go into which which gear you're going to bring and what you need and don't need. And for myself personally, and I I think for a lot of people that have done the Colorado Trail, that that figuring that out has happened over time. You know, you, you go on a trip and you have a great time and then you look at your stuff and you're like, wow, I never even used that. All <laughs> right. I'm not going to bring it next time. <laughs> well, for the ultralight um, backpackers, they've made a science out of um, being, be, being as comfortable as they need to be with less and less and less gear. And I have mm-hmm. seen people that don't even use a backpack anymore. They just kind of have an oversized fanny pack and that's good for days for them, which is amazing. Right. But you almost have that same yeah. mindset if you're going to try to bike pack, right? Because you're pretty limited. Yeah, you are, you are a lot more limited compared to, to backpacking because you certainly can't. It's not fun with a really heavy pack on a bike. So, so the, more, the more you can trim down your, the stuff you're bringing, the more fun you're going to have. Get outside with the Colorado Mountain Club. The CMC offers 3,000 outdoor skills courses, excursions, and special events every year to adventurers of all ages and abilities. 
Join today and receive an additional three free bonus months at www.cmc.org slash adventuresports and use discount code PODCAST. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. Okay, so now let's get down to the nitty-gritty of the race itself. This blows my mind, but this is a 500-mile race, and this is a large percent of that percentage of that race is on single track, and you're going all the way up to even 13,000 feet. It's lots of up and down. Matter of fact, let me see, what is the statistic here? 70,000 feet of elevation gain. So that's like doing Everest more than twice. <laughs> right on a bike yeah and people are doing this in under four days yeah it is it's pretty unbelievable when i became obsessed with the Colorado trail you know before i got married and riding it and trying to go fast on it i had these spreadsheets and i knew that it could be done in, in five days or maybe maybe just under five days by someone maybe not me but someone who was who was really really fit and skilled and talented and didn't sleep very much and uh eventually so the, the first race, the winning time was five days and five hours. That was like Hefe and I kind of together. And, um, and then I did it again and, and finally made my under five day mark. And then like, that was good for me. And then, and subsequently Hefe has taken it. He was the first person ever to go under four days, which is like, if you would have asked me that during the first race, I would have said that is impossible because we were, we hadn't slept for, you know, 40 hours or something at the end of the first race. And I, I was totally sleep deprived. My body was shot. I, I could barely walk. And he, he's figured out how to remove another 24 hours out of, out of five days. And that's, <laughs> that's incredible. I, it's, you know, you have to be for, for some perspective, like a, a 50 dial, 50 mile day on the Colorado trail is like an 18 hour day. I mean, that's a huge amount of riding. A, a popular ride is, is Kenosha Pass to Breckenridge on the Colorado Trail, and that goes up over over twelve thousand feet, and then back down, and and so that's about I think it's maybe six six or seven thousand feet of climbing in thirty miles, and people spend a full day doing that ride. So to to average in four days um, fifteen thousand vertical feet or twenty thousand vertical feet a day consecutively and sleep one hour at a time is uh it's pretty mind-boggling and i, I think I, I would say most people listening probably won't ever understand that until they go ride some pieces of the Colorado Trail. like actually how how amazing that really is it's uh it's, it's difficult to really comprehend i think <laughs> oh yeah well it, these these sorts of events where people are competing 
and they give up sleep so that they can stay ahead of the pack or set a new record or what have you. But these multi-day races like this where people might go four days with four hours of sleep total or even less, you know, these sorts yeah. of events are mind-blowing to me because you get so tired. How do you keep going, you know? How do you keep your mental acuity? I, I just can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. making decisions when you're sleep-deprived is a... Uh... I'm not sure if it's, it's probably a learned skill. I think there's some, some people are lucky. Some people have it, but uh, for me, that I, I, I don't think I have that when I'm sleep deprived. I don't make very good decisions. And uh, the last, the last couple of years, it's gone under four days, um, two more times. So wow. it's amazing. Yeah. Some really incredible athletes. So since they're trying to set all sorts of new records, right? Their kit's going to be different than what we described what what do you think uh, Hefe was using when he broke the four day record? He definitely did not bring a sleeping bag or a pad, or maybe even a bivy sack. Maybe he had he might have had like a six ounce Gore Tex bivy sack. And uh, I know that's what um, another guy Jesse Jacobite, who's gone under four days, um, has done. And and um, uh, another guy, Neil Bel- Belchenko, last year. So none of these guys take sleeping bags anymore. So if if something goes wrong, um, you're pretty much your your race is going to be done. There's no room for error there. You know, right. if you get trapped at eleven thousand feet or it's snowing or or something, and you don't have a way to crawl into your sleeping bag and recover, you're probably gonna you're gonna have to bail and leave the race and go 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 find a town or go find help or something. Sure. Well, I'm sure part of the strategy is to keep moving during the cold sections. And if you want to take your hour yeah. sleep for the night, you're going to find a, a warmer time of the day in a warmer place. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Man, just a fascinating event. The Colorado Trail itself, so beautiful. It's a, it's a national treasure. It really is. And then to have the opportunity to race mountain bikes on it and uh, find out what's even humanly possible you know, to, to be able to cover that kind of distance in those conditions in such a short period of time. It's, it's an amazing thing. This is one of those wow things. And it's like you said, until someone goes out and tries to write a part of it, they probably can't really understand what we're talking about. But man, it, it blows my mind that you guys are able to pull this off. Well, thanks. You should still go do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure all it, all it takes is a little taste and you go bikepacking and then there's so much more to see. And then you know, if you have a full-time job, you think, well, I have a week off. What can I do in a week? Well, it turns out you could probably bike back to Colorado Trail in a week. There you go. Yeah. I'd say that's not beyond most people that are into outdoor adventuring. Yeah. Well, I think I would enjoy slowing down and, and using two weeks myself, but I still, it's on my <laughs> list. I do want to bike yeah. the Colorado Trail. I really do want to do that. Really sounds like a lot of fun. Very, very cool stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, let's talk about the race this year. So it's coming up, uh, let's see, you said July 23rd, right? And it goes which direction this year? That's right. We start in Durango this year and right up to Denver. The Durango start is, it's interesting. A lot of people like to finish in Durango. It's kind of a neat a, a, a neater finish after being in, in the wild for four days. You roll into Durango instead of the city of Denver. Right. Um, but the Durango start is actually really, really cool. You start at four in the morning and we have a group of bikers that we start in downtown Durango. And so we ride 
through Durango, um, and there's nobody else around. The streets are dead, and we ride up to the trail, and then right off the bat, it's a six or seven thousand foot climb up to twelve thousand feet. Wow. So, yeah, so it starts off and just like in your face from the beginning. There's no mellow single track to to introduce you, and uh, we we start at four a.m. The idea there being that the the fast guys, the people that are trying to do it in around five days, will get to Silverton before 8 p.m. when the last store closes, um, because that's that's actually critical for the race. If you don't make it to Silverton by 8 p.m., you're going to have to overnight there, because the next resupply point is actually Buena Vista, which is about 200 miles away. Wow. Um, so unless unless you've carried everything from Durango, which means that first day and that first 7,000 vertical feet, you have enough calories to go for three days on your bike, which is really heavy. And some people do take that strategy. Um, in fact, I think Hefe may have taken that strategy even uh, just to save, I don't know, you know, save a little extra time in Silverton and, and not have to worry about whether or not you make it there or not. And then if you're planning on, you know, finishing in six or seven days, most people are going to overnight near Silverton anyway, and they can hit the store the next day. So it's always a compromise when to start the race, but that's why we picked four in the morning to, to balance out, you know, let the fast guys get resupplied and, and finish as fast as possible. And also a, a reasonable time for everybody else. Who's more like a six or seven day pace. So which direction do you I would prefer? Say, quite honestly, I think it's more fun to ride. The trail is more fun to ride from Durango to Denver. It's more the really high altitude sections are, I find actually more rideable. There's more, some of the uphill is tend to be, it tends to be like, you know, grassy stuff and the downhills are super steep, sandy things that if you were going from Denver to Durango, you might have to hike a bike those pieces, but either way, it doesn't matter. Either way, it's an incredible trail. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So you expect somewhere around 70 racers this year. We do expect around 70. The, um, yeah, we'll see. We never know. Cause there's no, it is a race, but there's no registration. There's no fee. There's no sign up really. It's just show up with all your stuff and play by the rules, which means ride the entire route. Um, don't set foot in a motor vehicle. Otherwise your race is over and do everything yourself and don't break the law. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty simple rules. And, uh, we usually have visibility as to how many people will show up. Um, oh, a couple of weeks before the race starts, I work with uh, this, this guy Scott Morris, who he started Track Leaders, and actually he he collaborated with me on the Colorado Trail Race in the beginning. He organizes the Arizona Trail Race, and he uh, has this company now, and they you know they provide the mapping, so they they show everybody's GPS location during the race, and it's overlaid on a map, and you can look at the weather and see who's getting totally pounded by the rain midway in the race which is really cool. So that's like the only sign up there there is for the races. If you want to rent one of these satellite tracking units, you sign up with track leaders and then uh, they add you to the leaderboard, but that's not required. I should point that out. You know, you can just show up and, and race and it's on our system. Tell me since I'm the organizer, just tell me what your time was and uh, I'll include you in the results. Oh, that's really cool. So if people so, want more information, where do they go to get more information about the race? I have a pretty rudimentary webpage called, it's just it's climbingdreams.net slash ctr or it's easier just to google ctr and they'll take you there 
and you can find out, you know, the rules. And there's some frequently asked questions about the rules because over the years, there's, you know, things have happened and they're like, well, is that, should that be allowed or not? Um, that's, yeah. And that gives you some stats and there's map links and you can download a GPX file. I would say 99% of the people take a GPS and load the track into the GPS. It just ensures that you don't miss pieces of it. You know, even though this, the Colorado trail is very, very well marked, but still you can get confused out there if you haven't slept much and, it's 2 a.m. Sometimes. <laughs> and raining. Yeah, and it's, and it's yeah, exactly, exactly. And the detours as well. There's no signs really, you know, when you get to Buena Vista to say, Colorado Trail goes that way, or the race goes that way. <laughs> right. So. Well, fascinating. Guys, I think this Colorado Trail race is amazing. I, uh, I hope that um, other people from around the planet, you know, might hear about it and say, you know what, that sounds cool and get involved and, and who knows where this would go someday. But I want to say thank you to you, Stefan, for putting the race together in the beginning to have a vision for it. And I know that a lot of people have certainly enjoyed it now over the years. So thanks for taking the time to do that for everybody else. Yeah, well, thanks, man. Uh, you know, and and I didn't have the pure vision there. I I was looking at races like, uh, the great divide race. So this, I'm, I was standing on shoulders of giants, just like everybody else. Uh, but, but the reason I've kept directing over the years is, is the stories that I get back from people and how it's, it's, it's been a life changing event for a lot of people, myself included. Sure. Um, you know, I, I had a good friend say, yeah, you, you put a positive dent in the world. <laughs> I was like, Oh, you know, that's, that, that meant a lot to me. That was a really nice thing to say. Yeah, that's very cool. So, yeah, and and I think in the last ten years, I mean, now there's there's this style of race all over the world. Now, they're springing up everywhere because people maybe are tired of paying money or you know the the pro racing scene, and they just want to go test themselves out on something really really hard. So everywhere from California to Germany and South Africa, these self supported races are popping up all over the place. Yeah, that's it's, it's cool a fun see. trend, really fun trend. I like it. It's kind of like adventure racing as well, you know. There's a lot of parallels yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's cheaper. There's no entrance fee. Well, it's not cheaper though because you got to, you know, got to buy a lot of gear and stuff just to get in. But you don't have to pay to race. <laughs> well, you know, you're going to buy that gear if you love mountain biking. Anyway, that gear is going to be there. So, well, Stefan, how about telling us one of those life changing stories that you mentioned to close out the show? Okay. Um, there's definitely a lot of them, but, but one that, that always comes to mind for me is, uh, there's a guy named Mark Caminiti and he came to the very first race. And I, I think I want to say he made it like 400 and something miles before he dropped out. And that was his first ever bikepacking race. Um, and since then he's done the Colorado trail race and finished it six times, I believe. And, uh, you know, he's not like a, at the very front of the pack with the four day guys, but it's, it's really the solo and self-supported responsibility nature of the race. Just being out there on your own and taking care of yourself has, uh, has, has definitely changed his life trajectory. I would say, and he'd, he'd probably, he'd probably agree. I, I love every time he shows up at the starting line. Right on. I mean, now he's pursued all these different bike packing races and, uh, has, I would say changed his life trajectory a little bit. Oh, that is so cool. You know, I think that any time we go out and test ourselves and stretch ourselves a little bit, it does that for us. That's one of the best things about adventure in my mind. And it doesn't have to be, 
you know, a 500 mile bike race, it, it can be just a matter of doing something that's unfamiliar. So even people yeah. that just go camping in the woods overnight that have never done it before, they're going to learn something about themselves, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially the first time, like the perspective gets reset a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't, if you haven't experienced something like that before and then, and then it's new for you, you can totally change your perspective on the thing. Oh, that's really cool. But I have to say, a 500-mile single track, mostly, right, bike race, that's got to be yeah. one of the biggest personal tests I could think of. That's crazy, man. <laughs> you should come do it. <laughs> well, I am going to ride it someday. Or at least someday, go ride it, yes. But I may not yeah. race it. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. It's worthy. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today about the Colorado Trail Race. I think it's a, an awesome event. And uh, thanks for sharing with all of our listeners. Absolutely. I'm, I'm flattered that you decided to call me and have me on the show. So thank you. <laughs> oh, it's our pleasure. Absolutely. And for all of our listeners out there, this is a really cool event. But, you know, I want to encourage you to come up with your own events, too. Think of something that you would like to do, set a goal, and then get out there and do it. Have some fun. And uh, maybe you'll find some of that, that thought time that could change your yeah, life. Yeah. And- and uh, at the very least, find the flow state. The flow state, absolutely. <laughs> right on, man. Well, have a good one. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. You bet. Coming up on Thursday's episode, Sean Stewart is here to talk about the Ireland High Peaks Challenge. Now do us a favor. Go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and like us on Facebook. Thanks, guys. Get out and have some fun.